0: We start with this new report on social service spending in the city of Vancouver. More than $5 billion a year being spent every year. Hundred What's that, $14 million a day. Now, a lot of people looking at the tent city on Hastings Street and some of the other problems we're seeing on the streets of Vancouver, wondering if this money is making any difference. Things seem to be getting worse. Are we getting value for money? This report is controversial. It's being criticized uh, by some as saying that it's not giving a true picture of the situation. We'll get into that for you, too. Let's uh, have a listen to this here now. B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon here reacting to this report, the conditions on the streets in Vancouver. Are we getting value for the money? Here's what he had to say.
1: What is shocking and should be shocking for the public is the fact that $100 million a week is being spent to get worsening results. David Eby has spent over a quarter of a billion dollars buying hotels and motels, overpaying them, and then warehousing people with severe mental health and and addiction issues into these hotels and creating chaos in the streets and the neighbourhoods surrounding these areas.
0: Okay, let's discuss it now with my guest, Todd Stone, a Liberal MLA, Kamloops South Thompson. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Todd, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about this report here. Now it's getting some fierce criticism from from advocates in the in neighborhoods like the downtown east side, saying it doesn't present a true picture. But let's talk about this money. Either way you cut it, there's a ton of money being spent here on social services in the city, including on the downtown east side. Are we getting value for the money? Things seem to be getting worse. Your thoughts?
2: Well, I think that's exactly the the, the number one question. Uh, you know, I'm not going to speak to the the intimate details of the of the report. Uh, I I understand that the Vancouver Police Department, which commissioned this report, will be out, uh, I think, at 11 o'clock this morning, and so they'll uh, presumably walk everybody through uh, the contents of the report. But but you're right. At the end of the day, whether it's $100 million per week being spent uh, or $50 million a week, whatever that number is, It's a huge amount of money uh, that is being poured into social services in Vancouver. And uh, what we look at uh, is a backdrop of of worsening results. We we look at the overdose crisis. Nearly six people a day are dying. We look at homelessness, which is getting uh, more and more prevalent every day. Uh, and, and, uh, and the social disorder that uh, British Columbians are increasingly uh, on the receiving end of. So uh, whatever, whatever uh, amount of money uh, the, actual, the actual number is, uh, it's, it's clearly uh, reflective of a system that is not actually working.
0: What would the Liberals do if you guys were in, in charge and you see this money? I mean, when you guys were in power, there were tons of money being poured into the downtown east side too. So how would you fix this?
2: Well, that that is a very fair question, Mike. Uh, The the reality, though, is that if we take a a sort of a quick step back and look at at the situation today, no one has ever seen uh, the the situation as bad as it is today. It was never ever this bad uh, uh, when we were in power. There were all kinds of challenges, and I think Kevin Falcon has been very clear that we were far from perfect uh, when we were in government. uh, But it's never been this bad. Uh, what would we do? Well, you, 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 would, you, you know, you start by recognizing that simply pouring more money uh, into into a current system that's not meeting the needs of vulnerable populations that's not uh, uh, seriously. Uh, abating the the overdose crisis um, is not necessarily the you know the 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 solution moving forward. You would uh, you would look at uh, at how resources and services are being allocated and make sure that there that there's better uh, provincial leadership and coordination. Frankly, there is no uh, leadership at the provincial level at the moment. Uh, you would um, I think there there probably does need to be an audit of some sort uh, that that takes a look at uh, how yeah. how uh, who's getting what amount of money and what is it for. And and Mike, there's got to be a transparency and accountability. The focus needs to be on outcomes. So if you're going to pour you know, more money uh, I- into the system, um, where is it going? Uh, how much of it's actually meeting the, you know, getting to the people who need it? And, and what are the results? Uh, none of that is, is, a,
0: is a feature of, of the, current, the current system under the NDP. Do you, do you think that, okay, you mentioned the word audit, and, and this is something that has leapt to my mind as well. Does there need to be a review or an audit of where this money is going, how it is being spent? Listeners might remember going back a few years when one of the key agencies in the downtown east side that provides housing to people was ca- that was caught like misusing money. I mean, Jenny Kwan, now an NDP MP, actually paid back a ton of money that was spent uh, to send send her family to Disneyland in Europe on vacations that was paid for by by one of these agencies. Do you think like there needs to be a deeper dive a- and look into where this money is going and an audit?
2: Well, at a high level, uh, absolutely. I I mean, uh, presently, no one seems to be responsible for uh, overseeing the, the expenditure of these funds in a centralized manner. When you talk to service providers, who, by the way, are on the front lines they're doing they're doing extremely important work under very uh difficult circumstances they will tell you that they they, they feel that they're they're operating in silos there isn't uh, a lot of integration between different service providers there's no tracking of uh, of results they face persistent you know barriers uh in in, in uh, across the system when you look more granularly um the you know apparently the vancouver's three largest social housing operators at Tierra, portland hotels society in rain city Um, you know, are spending, you know, north of $150 million per year on operating expenses. And half of that is money that's covering wages and employee benefits. And uh, yesterday, Janice Abbott, uh, the ATIRA CEO, was asked to disclose what her taxpayer-funded salary is, and she refused to. Uh, David Eby was asked to provide some comments on this. Uh, he was—he's been the housing minister for two and a half years and was the AG for the better part of five years. Sat at that cabinet table for every major NDP decision since he took power, and and he refused to comment. So there needs to be some accountability here. And and sure, uh, part of it uh, should be an audit of, of some sort to, to get to the bottom of, of where is this money going? Is it reaching the people that it that it that it needs? And uh, uh, I think there has to be a willingness to do things uh, differently. Uh, so you think the so? people need.
0: Okay, so you think that some of these contracted nonprofit agencies that you just touched on, that they should be required to disclose their, their CE, their executive salaries?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, it's taxpayers' okay. money that's funding their salaries. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the government, uh, the NDP under David as housing minister, went out and spent quarter of a billion dollars buying uh, buying up hotels and essentially warehousing okay. people in them uh, without the supports that people need and and there's a lot of money flowing to those to those operations. Uh, I think British Columbians have a right to know where the money's going, how much it is actually going where and and what are the results? That's okay. what really matters is outcomes.
0: Okay, we we touched briefly on the fact there's controversy around this report. We're going to dig further into it here now and Rob Shaw, very respected journalist and his column this morning in Business in Vancouver calls this report Uh, a work of fiction that if you take a look at the details of where they got these figures and where this money came from, $5 billion a year being spent on social services, apparently that includes uh, expenses in Vancouver for the Canada Pension Plan for everybody in Vancouver, old age security (laughs) and EI. So let me play. So Rob was speaking to our own Simi Sarah about that this morning. Here's what he had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. Rob Shaw.
3: The VPD summary of the report is laughable in sections um it's it's clearly designed to make an argument that we're wasting a bunch of money primarily in vancouver's downtown east side and the vpd is not getting enough money for its budget
0: okay do you so there's a lot of criticism of this report todd that it's some sort of a false flag report that it's not fair that it's maybe kind of just an effort by the vancouver police department to pad its own budget your thoughts well, look. As I said at the outset, uh, the the VPD
2: is is going to have to walk uh, people through this report, and and you know they can they can explain uh, the numbers and how they arrived at the numbers and so forth. What I think really matters uh, is that homelessness is continuing to increase, crime and social uh, disorder on their streets is spiraling out of control, and the and the toxic drug crisis is continuing to claim nearly three lives a day. That is indisputable. Yeah. Uh, the, the results of, of whatever the amount of money is that's being spent, and I would argue that while it may not end up, uh, maybe it's not the $5 billion number that this report uh, speaks to uh, when you net a few things out, it's, it, you know, if it's $2.5 billion, it's $2 billion. The results are terrible, particularly for hey. the vulnerable populations who need support and for British Columbians who have, uh, increasingly are increasingly on the receiving end of random assaults and, and social disorders. Something's okay. got to change. And Mike, it's uh, uh, got to start with an audit, I, I believe, and, and frankly, a recognition that throwing money at the same ineffective model and expecting a different outcome uh, hasn't worked and it's not going to work
0: in the future. Thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks, Mike. Let's keep talking about this report on social services spending in the city of Vancouver. Now more than five billion dollars a year, fourteen million dollars a day. This rocket, uh, this report in the last couple of days is of setting off a lot of rockets people looking at conditions on the downtown east side wondering if we're getting value for money with all the money being spent down there you just heard from the uh, uh, liberal mla calling for an audit of this spending let's check in with political correspondent for check news rob shaw who's uh, dug into this report i found a lot of holes in it and i encourage you to check his column on this follow me on twitter i just posted the link there for you rob thank you for coming on hey no problem Okay, Rob, your column on this in business in Vancouver uh, basically <laughs> calls the report an inflated work of fiction. Let, let's dig into this. Where are the problems here? Where are the holes in this report?
3: Yeah, well, on a big level, and you've been talking about this already, but it it seems to calculate $5 billion in what it calls the social safety net. And the inference in this uh, is that this is money spent to help people on the downtown east side primarily with overdoses, with crime with poverty uh and when you pull the numbers apart you end up with at least two billion of that is federal transfers uh from ottawa and when you go further down into the actual report they break out what the federal transfers are and they're primarily the old age security for seniors and the canada pension plan the child tax benefits um things that everybody is getting in vancouver they're not um downtown east side social safety nets so uh. take $2, billion, $2 billion off of the $5 billion from the start. And then you end up looking at another billion four, billion, um, which is money that they say is uh, part of charitable foundations and donations. And then you look at the list of charities, and you discover that it looks like what they did is just look at charities that have registered addresses in Vancouver with the Canada Revenue Agency. And you end up with province-wide nonprofit groups like Legal Services, which does legal aid for all of B.C., and its entire revenue, which is something in the range of $70 million or so, thrown in as money that charities are uh, using in Vancouver, which is not correct. Uh, it has a Forensic Psychiatric Services Commission budget of $78 million thrown in in the charity section when it provides clinics in Prince George and in and, and Nanaimo and Kamloops. Yeah. And then you've got weirdo things like um, Aquafit. And uh, uh. horse society, and so, so now you're at 3.4 billion of the five billion being completely questionable at the very best, misleading and inaccurate at the worst. I just stopped counting at that point. I mean I don't know how you got to count every single stupid thing that they uh, put in here, but three point four of the five billion is is not good already. I don't see much value in, uh, in in that figure at all, to be honest
0: with you. Okay, I'm, I'm really glad you've done this work and sort of trying to pull these numbers apart, because I, I think the column and the analysis that you've written is absolute required reading to, to understand this report, so I encourage people to, to check it out. I guess the bottom line is, though, that people see the deteriorating conditions in the downtown east side, they see the sprawling tent city, they see the increase in violent crime, and they know that there's a ton of money being poured into that neighborhood and are we getting value for the money? Which I think is still a, a relevant question. So, oh, yeah. I guess the question is, how much money is going into the downtown east side? Do we know? Does it say in this report? It,
3: it doesn't really, it doesn't really get into that. And no. you're absolutely right. Like, there are metrics in here that it that it points out that we all know. Right, overdoses are at record levels. Right. Um, it seems like the tent cities are getting worse. It's it it's it, like. No one's disputing that, and I, I think there is a ton of room out there for somebody to break apart the, the money that is being spent on the agencies down there and audit and analyze it, I guess. I mean, Todd Stone right. was on there talking about an audit. But if you swing this wildly in, wrong on a total that is so big, I think you sort of undermine that premise. I did see the social, former um, social uh, minister, uh, Shane Simpson, was on Twitter yes. telling me that he he pegs the amount spent down there at around 500 million a year, which is still a lot mm. of money, and it's public money, and there should be accountability for that. And I I did note that Global has tried to interview, um, you know, the heads of uh, of Atria and others on their salaries and didn't get a lot yes. of answers. Totally legitimate, completely 100% legitimate. I just don't I don't think this report um, from an Alberta company lumping in a bunch of things that maybe are apples and oranges is, is really the way to get into that.
0: Okay, 30 seconds left here, Rob. Do you think that, like, what would be the motivation for putting together a report with these type of bombshell numbers in the headline? Like, like you speculated yeah. that maybe it's because, what, the Vancouver Police Department are trying to say, hey, maybe you should give us more money in our budget to deal with this. Yeah,
3: their summary clearly tries to make that point. And look, you've yeah. got a new mayor just sworn in. He's going to be tough on crime. This would help him with his 100 police officer thing. And you've got a new premier that the liberals would love to blame for all of the problems and misspending down there. Like he wrote a $5 billion check, which he did not. So I think there's some political motivations on leaking this thing for sure. Rob,
0: thanks for coming on. Okay. Take care. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about David Eby's plan to ban rental restrictions in strata properties. So no more rental rules in condo buildings. This is a key promise from Eby here. He's set to become the next premier of British Columbia next week. He wants to create more rental homes in B.C. Now, how would he do that? Well, partly by telling strata councils you can't ban rentals in your building. Some condo buildings are no rentals allowed, only owner-occupied. You're not allowed to rent out your condo. E.B. wants to change that. He wants to ban those type of rules. Have a listen to what he said about this here. Now, why here's why he's doing this and why he thinks it would be a good thing. Here's EB. We right. know from the speculation
4: tax that there are thousands of units uh, in the province that are vacant uh, in uh, communities where the rental vacancy rate is about 0%. I mean,
2: there's, there are people searching for housing. They can't find a place to rent. There's someone who wants to rent this vacant unit.
0: Okay, so let's talk about this now with my guest, Daryl Foster, Strata advisor at the Condo Owners Association of BC. Very pleased to welcome him, Daryl. Thank you for coming on today.
5: Well, uh, thank you, Mike. Okay,
0: so we just heard in that clip from David Eby there, he talked about thousands of empty units just sitting empty when people are desperate to to rent these these properties out, does that paint a fair picture of the situation? Like are there thousands of empty condos just sitting there that could be rented out, but they can't?
5: Yeah, well, there could be, but the reality here is that um, we did a survey of, of our members and got over 3,100 responses. Um, and uh, we found that the strata corporations that have, um, that have the highest occupancy are the ones with the rental restrictions. And so, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to hear that, the, you know, the, they're thinking of opening up this um, when there really doesn't seem to be a demand at that level. And, um, and so, we we've seen uh, part of our survey that we did also show that a lot of these strata corporations are the smaller strata corporations of 50 or 75 units that, um, you know, they're they're. I think, justifiably worried about, about uh, this prospect because they're going to end up having to manage this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who are involved with strata councils, people who, who live in no-rental-allowed buildings, and they say one of the reasons we bought this, this condo was because we don't want to live in basically an apartment building. We don't want to live in a rental building. We want to live with owner-and-owner-occupied and owner building because we think there could be problems with, with renters, noise, damage to the units. Do you hear that too?
5: Um, yeah, that's one of the big concerns that we're hearing. Um, you know, I think going back to this idea of occupy, just occupied space, um, you know, we've got 99% of our respondents say that they're – or. 99% occupied in these buildings that have the rental restrictions and under the ones that are exempted. So after 2010, January 1st, 2010, um, when a strata was created, the developer was no longer permitted to impose um, rental restrictions or limitations. So um, that they're only 76 to 88% occupied, right? So I think the the, the fears of these owners is, is somewhat justified. Um, but mm-hmm. You know, I think we need to really look at what's being and understand what's what's possibly going to be presented. So to be fair, I think that's really important for us to really study, um, you know, what amendments are going to be made and and all implications are going to be studied. Right.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, EB is going to be sworn in as premier next week, a week from Friday. And we'll see if he goes through with this promise, which is getting some resistance. We'll see what the details are more precisely when he unveils it, Mm -hmm. but let's, let's talk about, you know, like the other thing that occurred to me was, could this have an unintended consequence? Like, could you be asking for trouble where there is none right now? Like if you start saying that every, basically every condo would be available to rent out if the owner wants to rent it out, does that not make the property more valuable? Like, does that not make that particular condo more more attractive to someone who's like an investment and an inv- someone who wants to buy the place as an investment and then it becomes more expensive
5: yeah absolutely i think yeah. that's one of the one of the things that could possibly be happening which is why i think studying the implications of any proposed legislation is really important but you think about this the the uh, housing affordability is you know is about keeping people in their homes and family affordability and a lot of these strata corporations are older strata that have these right so prior to 2010 being created and so these are a more affordable housing stock anyway for purchase for families and you start having you know speculators buy in and buy up because they're now have unopposed rentals allowed and there's potential there for these prices to skyrocket in these in these right and and so you know I think that's you know it's worthy of study for sure
0: yeah. Speaking of Daryl Foster, Condo Owners Association, I've heard from a lot of condo dwellers who say, we don't want to live in a building that allows rentals because there you could get a bad renter in there, a bad tenant, and then it's difficult to, to evict them under current laws. Yeah. Let's have a listen to David Eby responding and commenting on that precise point. Like, what if you have a situation where you have a bad tenant and it's difficult to get rid of them, they're causing problems, especially if he wants to expand this. And here's what he had to say. Then I'll get your thoughts.
4: People are worried, you know, you get a renter in there, it creates a bunch of problems. And how do you get rid of them if there's an absentee owner and they destroy life in the condo and so on? So making sure that there are rules so that strata can go to the residential tenancy branch and have that tenant removed and recover those costs from the absentee owner is an essential part of this as well to make sure that buildings are livable.
0: Okay. So he says that he would expand the rights of these strata corporations to remove bad tenants if there are problems. Are you are you buying that? Does that reassure you?
5: Well, I mean, uh, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? I mean, uh, the problem is the Residential Tenancy Act and the Strata Property Act don't interconnect right now. So uh, that's the frustration currently with Strata councils and Strata corporations that are dealing with bad tenants or bad landlords or both, right? And so, you know, I think if there was some significant legislative changes to, to both those acts that it's possible to deal with, but think about this again. Um, the burden falls to this volunteer council to deal with, right? Yeah. And, and so you've got a bunch of volunteers that are now dealing with a tenancy issue that they may not be equipped to handle, even if the legislation supports their ability to evict, right? It's, it's, a, it's kind of an interesting situation to put, to put these volunteer council members and owners in, um, because the effect on the community can be quite large. All right.
0: Talking condo rules and regulations with Daryl Foster, condo owners association, tons of phone calls here, Bob in South Surrey. Hi, Bob, go ahead.
1: Hi there. Um, classic case of government thinking they can fix it with a stroke of a pen while they may uh, be able to change the regulations of stratas, What stops the strata from putting a fee on the rental property? If you
5: rent it out, that makes it prohibitive.
0: Okay. Is that possible, Daryl?
5: Um, most likely not. I'd, I'd seek some legal advice, but honestly, um, Strata Corporation can't uh, impose fees on owners um, that would affect only one group of owners, I suspect. So, I, again, yeah. that's going to take a legal opinion, but you're creating basically two classes of owners at that time. So,
0: John in the North Shore. Hi, John. Go ahead.
5: Hi guys.
1: Um, so I was uh, uh, president on our strata board for two years, and um, when I got there, the bylaws had only three units that were rentable in our 25 unit total. And I thought that that was kind of discriminatory to all the other owners because those three people had locked it up and were never going to give up their rentals. And there was teachers. Many of them, uh, of our, the people who live in our place, are teachers professors and they were all saying the same thing. We can't go away on a sabbatical and rent our place out for six months because these people have it locked up. So I changed it. I, I put it in the um, in the new bylaws, put it up for a vote and it passed. And since then two more have gone up for rental and they're fantastic people. They're involved with the community. they're we've had no issues whatsoever. Now, that said, in the bylaws, we put the person renting for on the hook for everything. They had to change their insurance to tenants. They had to do all the the steps that we required to, or they couldn't rent. Them okay.
0: Out. Okay. So, do you di- therefore think it, that David Eby is onto something here and has a good idea that all all strata properties, all condos, should be available to rent out? If the owner wants to rent them out, John, do you think that's a good idea?
1: I do. I do. I think okay. now you can you can make it with legal uh, requirements and, and insurance requirements uh, to get the people out. And really, it's up to the owner. If There's nothing to say that you don't get a bad owner. So what's the difference between yeah.
5: a bad owner and a bad tenant?
0: OK, Daryl, what do you think of that?
5: Yeah, no, I think that was probably a really good exercise in the democratic rights of the owners, right, to make decisions of their own, um, pass bylaws that work for them. And and that's what we're talking about is the communities are worried that that's going to be ripped away from them, right?
0: Right. You're Um, you're saying you should have the right to make your own rules if you want.
5: Yeah, and that we've always had that as part of of the the act, right? Rick and
0: Delta. Hi, Rick. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's communal living, and if the members of the strata want uh, certain rules and so on, so what's on the menu next? Uh, No age restriction uh, uh, allowed. No pets restriction Mm. allowed. Um, You know, it's just uh, manipulating our social structure. You know, there's people that want to live in age-restricted buildings. I mean, I'm not a big fan of it, but having said that, Uh, you know, is that next on the list? The government's got
2: to interfere, interfere, interfere.
0: That's a very interesting point. Could it be the thin edge of the wedge here, Daryl, for more government intervention? Like, maybe you're saying, well, you can't have age restrictions in a building now, or you have to allow pets. Your thoughts?
5: Yeah, well, I mean, it's possible. Uh, I think that, you know, again, to be fair, that whatever amendments are being proposed, uh, we hope that the, the government considers all the implications, right? So, you yeah. know, if the public wants this kind of oversight or, or you know, extra uh, sort of information built into the legislation, then then that's fine. But it, I think it needs to be balanced with uh, consideration of all aspects of the changes, right?
0: Keep calling on this. Star 9898 on your cell. Reese and Langley. Hi, Reese. Go ahead.
5: Good morning, guys. Just a quick question from
1: a different perspective. They take the vacancy tax. Does the government collect that the cost of that condo or that apartment? Because the ones in Vancouver that are luxury vacant apartments, if they have a value of two or three million, are they really rentable? Because they would be what eight, ten thousand dollars a month to rent.
0: Okay, the speculation and vacancy tax in BC, Daryl, your thoughts?
5: Uh, well, I mean, again, that's a piece of legislation that. Uh... You know, it's in place, and we have to deal with and it, and it could be a, a reason why owners might be more willing to allow these rentals because of this, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Daryl in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Go ahead.
5: Hi. Uh, I, uh, thank you for taking my call. I live in a, sure. a, a building that restricts rentals, uh, and, and things seem to go well. And and like your other callers, what's next? Also, for your guest, there are older buildings in, in uh, the Lower Mainland that are um, – Co-op buildings, where they are Mm. part of a corporation, you own that, and they are not rentable. You cannot rent them out. Also, age-restricted buildings, as a previous caller said. This is a very complicated question, and really the answer to this is the municipalities, the provincial government, and the federal government, building purposeful rental buildings. Where they have professional companies that manage those buildings, strata corporations that are volunteer uh, strata councils aren't equipped to uh, uh, operate uh, rental buildings. I'll wait for your guest's comments.
0: Thank you, thank you, Daryl.
5: Yeah, Daryl, go, uh, Daryl, your thoughts. Well, I mean, again, we already spoke a little bit to that. I think, yeah, uh, yeah there is there could be potential for a burden because right now I do see that in buildings that allow rentals when we have landlords and tenants that can be problems where the council's frustrated with their ability to deal with these things. You know, again, it would take a legislation change to the Residential Tenancy Act and the Strata Property Act to kind of tie those together better for Stratus. Um But yeah, the age restriction thing, I think, um, you know, uh, I heard that the uh, age restriction for the, uh, 55 plus is, is not something that's looking to go away, but they might eliminate the ability to, uh, pass bylaws around, you know, 19 plus only. Um, and that I think yeah. was intended to, or possibly intended to, uh, you know, to try and balance this out for families' ability to, yeah. to, uh, you know, have occupancy. But uh, again, uh, we do really need to take a close look as to what the effect this is going to have on communities that we're intent on being a, a senior uh, residential community, right?
0: Sure, sure. John in Vancouver. Hi, John, go ahead. I can't believe I'm saying this, but
2: um, I actually agree with the NDP, and there's no question in my mind that they'll probably screw this up, but one of your callers mentioned that <laughs> uh, this is like a, a form of government intervention, and I think in reality this is actually the government stepping out and allowing homeowners the opportunity to decide what they'd like to do with their own home rather than another level of bureaucracy such as a strata council deciding what they can in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, during the financial crisis i was 22 years
4: old and owned a townhouse and um, due to financial implications of me being in grad school i needed to rent out my townhouse but i couldn't
3: yeah. my strata mm-hmm.
4: council wouldn't allow me and i was forced to sell it because of the financial situation i was in as a young person and it was really unfortunate
2: it was really the strata council that paralyzed my financial future with that in the restrictions that they provided
0: thank you john for that call we got 30 seconds left here daryl i I guess he's basically saying maybe this is a, a cause for freedom and give people the freedom to do whatever they want with the property they own if they want to rent it out let them rent it out but your thoughts
5: uh, well, I think we just go back to the idea of the strata concept, right? You know, it's kind of yeah. we're all in this together. So communities need to make decisions about communities. Um, and and the bylaws are available when you purchase your unit. So you will know if there's a rental restriction bylaw in place. Okay. And, you know.
0: Daryl, thanks a lot. We could do the whole show on this topic. we got more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thanks for coming on today.
5: No worries. Thank you. All right,
0: let's talk about the razor close results here in the U.S. Uh, midterm elections. Here we got Reggie Giacchini standing by in Washington. Have a listen to this report here from NBC reporter Gabe Gutierrez on the very, very close, too close to call Senate race in Georgia. Have a listen.
2: Incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock is holding that slight lead over his challenger, football legend Herschel Walker. But there's a third-party candidate in this race, and according to Georgia state law, if no candidate reaches that 50 percent threshold, we'll see a runoff here next month. Now, this has been a wild race, with more than a quarter billion dollars flowing into the state. And now voters in Georgia are preparing for the possibility of another four
5: weeks of campaigning,
0: Yeah, they could have more campaigning and more money being spent down there. It's still not decided who is going to control the U.S. Congress here. Let's check in with Reggie Cicchini now, Global News, Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks for taking the time today. Good morning. Okay, I was going to ask you who won, but we don't know who won yet, right? They're still counting
4: ballots. They are still counting uh, ballots, and there are a lot of them that need to be counted. Uh, in Arizona, there's more than four hundred thousand of them. Uh, California has thirty-eight days to be able to certify its results. They are still tabulating uh, ballots in Nevada, and also when it comes to that Georgia race, uh, as you had just played there, the Secretary of State in Georgia now says that that run, uh, that race will go to a runoff uh, in December. So, you know, if Georgia happens to be the deciding state, it is going to be several more weeks. Before before we find out.
0: Holy smokes, To talk about everything on the line here if it goes to a a runoff here. How does that runoff system work? Why do they have to do a a do-over and have another election here now? So
4: essentially because there are a number of people that are on the ballot vying for that Senate seat, uh, if no candidate finds themselves with 50% plus of the vote, uh, then they will take the top two candidates and they will hold a runoff election in December. This is what happened back in 2020 uh, and how how Georgia uh, was handed to the Democrats in a runoff election and historically in uh, these kind of situations, it does often favor the Democrats. So there is a potential here that the Democrats could keep their, uh, their control of the Senate if they are able to kind of maintain that momentum going forward into this December runoff.
0: Okay. There was a lot of speculation in the last few days, Reggie, that the Republicans were set to have a good night with a lot of concerns around a wobbly economy in the United States. That's usually good for the Republicans. It seemed to be setting up as kind of a Republican wave. Didn't work out that way. Let me play a clip here for you from Mark Thiessen, longtime Republican strategist. He's a former speechwriter for former Republican President George W. Bush here. And he just lays it on the line here in a very blunt analysis. And I'll get your thoughts.
2: We have the worst inflation in four decades.
0: The worst collapse in real wages in 40 years,
2: the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the worst border crisis in U.S. history. We have Joe Biden, who is the least popular president since Harry Truman, since presidential polling happened, and there wasn't a red wave. That is a searing indictment of the Republican Party. That is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters.
0: Okay, pretty blunt bottom line there. Reggie, your thoughts?
4: Well, sure. Republicans did run on a campaign uh, of trying to fix what they believe are uh, failed policies of the Biden administration, uh, especially when it comes to higher living costs and higher energy costs and higher uh, interest rates from the Federal Reserve. But what that does is it ignores underlying issues that led to that. You know, inflation is not a U.S. problem. It is a global problem right now. And a part of that comes from Russia's war uh, in Ukraine. But Republicans didn't really focus on that part. But secondly, while Republicans tried to kind of um, you know gear Themselves towards what they believe to be the core issues in the country, like immigration or the economy. What that fails to do is capture a younger part of the odd, uh, a younger part of the population. That is where Democrats were able to scoop up because they tried to put abortion as the leading issue, along with rights for LGBTQ people and for uh, for voting rights and kind of this attack on democracy. And ultimately, the younger crowd did show up, and that kind of helped to uh, let Democrats perform better than expected. And it eroded some of that vote for Republicans, because they were so laser-focused on things that not the entire population of people were that concerned about.
0: Okay, I thought it was very interesting, Reggie, that you had a lot of very high-profile kind of... People have been known as the election deniers, this argument that the American election system is crooked, that the election was stolen from Trump, and they still haven't cleaned it up. A lot of people who were running on that sort of platform... Didn't do very well last night, notably Carrie Lake, who was running for the Arizona governor, very high-profile election denier. Let's listen to her opponent here, Democratic governor, a Democratic candidate for governor in Arizona, Katie Hobbs here, uh, accusing her her opponent of continuing to spread these election theories. Have a listen to this.
4: We know my opponent and her allies have been sowing doubt and confusion throughout this campaign. And it's unacceptable that they were spreading misinformation today while people were exercising their freedom to vote. I have every confidence that the counties administering this election conducted conducted a free and fair election.
0: Did did the election deniers, Reggie, have a a bad night last night? Do you think there was a public backlash against this idea?
4: Yeah, they, they did have a bad night. And I think um, a bit of fairness here as well. Katie Hobbs in that clip you just played, she is the secretary of state uh, in Arizona. She is the one who is in charge uh, of the electoral system throughout the state and said that this is going to be a close race, but that uh, that nothing was going to be fraudulent about that. Uh, broadly, though, across the country, there were more than 160 election deniers that were on the ballot, mm-hmm. either federally or uh, at the state level, and 85 of them. Were projected to lose. What does that mean? It means that more than 80 people who actually still believe that the 2020 election was fraudulent and that Donald Trump had that election stolen from him are now going to sit in offices that some of them may have to do with how the election system works. So while this was a kind of, uh, you know, a bit of a brutal night for for at least the Trump backed candidates who are election deniers, there are other ones out there who managed to make their way through. And there is kind of concern here for what that's going to mean, not only for the next two years, but also heading into the next election in 2024.
0: Okay, speaking of Trump, let's listen to Trump here. Now, this is Trump commenting before the election results came in. He kind of predicts a a good night for the Republicans here. didn't really work out that way. And then who's who's going to get the blame for this mess in the Republican Party? Listen to what Trump has to say here, then I'll get your thoughts.
1: If they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? but it'll probably be just the opposite. Uh, when they win, I think they're going to do very well. I'll probably be given very little credit, even though in many cases I told people to run and they ran and they turned out to be very good candidates. You know, they've turned out to be very good candidates. Uh, but usually what would happen is uh, when they do well, I won't be given any credit. And if they do badly, they will blame everything in me. OK,
0: Reggie, I'm wondering if Maybe he's he's right in what he said there, that are people blaming Donald Trump for this poor showing by the Republicans last night?
4: There are Republicans uh, in the strategic world there are Republicans who are from the former political world who are saying this was uh, this was coming that this uh, was a, a Republican issue of their own making by allowing Donald Trump to continue to have his hands uh, you know playing kingmaker around the country in these elections. Donald Trump uh, his favorability numbers broadly nationally outside of the Republican Party are not high uh, and he put candidates out there that were weak. he put candidates out there that were parroting Many of the comments that he made, the grievances that he made that go back to 2020 and oftentimes before 2020. So for Donald Trump to now say that, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to take the blame for any of these candidates that lost there uh, that lost. There is no other person to blame for those candidates because they were given that kind of kiss from the hand uh, of, uh, of Donald Trump <laughs> by being put in place there. Uh, and there are broad conversations happening behind closed doors in the Republican Party to determine whether or not it's possible time for new leadership
0: okay is this is this the end of trump now because there was a lot of speculation he was gearing up for another run for president that maybe he would announce even as early as next week getting set for a showdown with florida governor ron DeSantis, who won big last night but with this this showing by the republicans last night reggie does this give trump second thoughts here about running
4: I mean, it very well might. I mean, look, last night showed that Trumpism, which was on the ballot because Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, is not as strong as it was, say, over the last couple of months and how strong it was between 2016 uh, and 2020. And there are grave concerns amongst not just the Republican Party, but, you know, a broad swath of the electorate here that Donald Trump simply isn't the best man for for the job to be either leading the Republican Party or to take uh, a second term uh, as President uh, of the United States, and and you're right, there is uh, a real possibility here that if he still decides to announce his run, he will be running uh, on now a failed legacy uh, of how he kind of performed with his candidates in this midterm election. He will also be going up against uh, likely Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, like you mentioned, yeah. somebody who scored an incredibly large victory uh, last night with more than a million votes. He has an incredibly solid base under him along with a long list uh of fundraisers this is now going to potentially be that 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 matchup of a new republican era uh if the party opts to say donald trump has too much baggage we need to take this party in a new direction it might be donald trump light when it comes to ron desantis yeah. but it's not donald trump
0: okay where does this go from here now everything is still up in the air we have this potential runoff and some of these key close races So the Senate's not decided. It looks like the Republicans are going to get the House, though, right?
4: Yeah, I think it's fair to characterize the House as Republican leaning because yeah. uh, there have been some upsets over the last uh, uh, 24 hours or so with uh, Republicans being able to flip key swing state seats, uh, notably uh, through Virginia Beach uh, with uh, with Representative Loria, who was actually on the January 6th committee. She lost her seat last night. So, too, uh, did Representative uh, Maloney in New York that is now uh, in the hands of the Republican. He himself uh, was a leading figure uh, in the Democratic National uh, Committee there. Uh, Uh, So Republicans are likely going to take the House. That's why we're calling it a Republican-leaning House. But there are still so many votes out there that that big wave, you know, really did just become kind of a red ripple that is just kind of approaching (laughs) the shoreline. Uh, It is not going to be a big, big majority. But at the end of the day, a single-seat majority is all Republicans need to be able to stall the president's agenda.
1: We have embraced freedom. We have
5: maintained law and order, we have protected the rights of parents, we have respected our taxpayers, and we reject woke ideology. (laughs)
1: We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die.
0: (laughs) Okay. Florida is where woke goes to die. That was reelected Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in a barn burner of a victory speech last night. He rolls to a big win in Florida, and who knows? Probably sets him up as the Republican nominee for president too. Speaking to Reggie cicchini Global News Washington correspondent, about yesterday's election results, Ron DeSantis won big, Reggie.
4: He did win big because he understands Florida and he understands, uh, the Republican landscape. He's also done a good job at fundraising. He has done a good job at taking the kind of, uh, tone that Donald Trump used to use, uh, and kind of has, you know, retooled it to his own ability. He's also made inroads, uh, throughout the entire state when it comes to the Latino population. Now, obviously, you know, Latino is not a monolith around the country, but at the end of the day, uh, Venezuelan and Cuban and Puerto Rican, um, uh, people oftentimes tend to lean towards, uh, the right and toward lean towards the Republicans, uh, and and Ron DeSantis has seized on that. He now has a nearly entirely red state that was once kind of trending towards purple. That is why people within the Republican Party uh, are saying that he is aligning himself or putting himself, uh, you know, forward to be a potential yeah. 2024 candidate.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that's that's where this is leading. That he wants to run for president. I remember there was a moment in the debate for governor during the election campaign where he was asked straight up if you win if you're reelected as the Florida governor will you commit to serving a full term and of course that, <laughs> he didn't want to answer that question because i think it's pretty clear he's going to run run for president could do you think he can he translate that popularity that he's he's rolled up in florida nationally in a, in america do you think
4: it's possible, at least amongst the Republican Party, uh, it is possible. You know, if you go back in time, Ron DeSantis was one of the first uh, governors to reopen his state. He kind of poked a hole in all of the situations that were happening in and around the COVID crisis, uh, and he went his own route. His state didn't collapse and, in fact, uh, he ended up garnering more support for that. He has kind of taken on that quote-unquote woke culture, including that very open fight that he had uh, with Disney, and it did not turn yes. off Republicans uh, from uh, from being with him. And at the end of the day, during last night's vote. He also happened to take uh, Broward County, which oftentimes goes towards the Democrats. It voted heavily for the Republican, and that was for Ron DeSantis. So he understands the political landscape with the party, uh, and he is setting himself up to potentially be his own uh, kingmaker here. He did a lot of touring around the United States to give a backing to Republican candidates, candidates that Donald Trump didn't back, and candidates that ultimately won. I wonder what will
0: convince trump now to take this guy on if trump does decide to run again for the republican nomination for president i mean this guy just looks like a juggernaut now after what he accomplished in florida i'm not sure trump can beat him and i wonder if trump is doing the calculus in his own mind if he can't win does he bother running like i'm just it just seems a little less likely he's going to run now or do you think trump's the type of guy who, no matter what the odds he's going to go for it
4: Trump will take this and blame it on somebody else and try to say that he is still the person who needs to lead the Republican Party. He's done this before. Yeah. He's been to debates before. And he uses nicknames or, or condescending terms to go after people and try to hope that the base that follows him will ultimately, uh, you know, choose to not follow somebody else. Uh, you know, Donald Trump is is a fighter. And if he finds that Ron DeSantis is winning, there's a real potential here that Donald Trump tries to then run as a third party candidate, not somebody for the wow. Republican Party. I don't think that this is the time to count Donald Trump out, despite the fact that he has seen significant losses with his uh, candidates in the midterms. Donald Trump is known as somebody who can be backed into a corner and still comes out unscathed.
0: Reggie, thank you for taking the time for us on a busy day for you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk pedestrian safety now on the streets of our cities. How about speed limits on residential side roads? Do you think those speed limits should be lowered? Some municipalities are looking at doing that. Should it be province-wide, perhaps? We slow down, especially on residential side streets in cities like Vancouver and Surrey. How about this? Jaywalking. Look what they're doing in California. Now, you'd think jaywalking would be a risky thing to do, right? Against the law in the city of Vancouver, for sure. But look what they're doing in in California now, where the governor has now signed a bill that would make jaywalking legal in California i got Sandy James standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report now from CBS News.
5: It's clear that the current law did not hinder pedestrians from jaywalking, even by
1: threatening people with tickets. But starting January 1st, that will change now that Governor Gavin
5: Newsom signed the Freedom to Walk Act. It's an unfortunate time for anyone who gets stopped by law enforcement for jaywalking. What's even worse, having to pay for that hefty fine. But soon, Californians won't have to pay attention to the white lines of crosswalks. Under a new law, pedestrians will be able to legally cross the street outside of designated intersections without the threat of a citation, unless
1: it's during an immediate danger.
5: We believe everyone in California has the freedom to uh, walk across the street without being feared. Uh, citation
0: okay so the freedom to walk act in california no longer be illegal to jaywalk now what is the law in vancouver i'm taking a look at city vancouver bylaw number 2849c says quite clearly no pedestrian shall jaywalk on a roadway You do that, you could get a ticket. Look what they're doing in California. It's legal everywhere. Should they do that here, too? Okay, let's discuss pedestrian safety now with my guest, Sandy James. Sandy is a city planner and writer at viewpointvancouver.ca, and I recommend her most recent column on this topic there. Sandy, thanks for coming on again.
6: Hi, good morning, Mike.
0: Okay, Sandy, let's start with jaywalking, first of all. What do you think about what they're doing in California? Just make jaywalking legal. You just cross the street anywhere you want.
6: Well, you know, I just want to point out that in, in Britain and Norway that have some of the lowest crash rates, death rates for automobile crashes in the world, jaywalking has always been legal. Mm. Jaywalking is actually uh, a Amer- North American idea, and it was brought in in the 1920s um, to make car traffic more dominant on roads. Mm. And so J refers to a person who is um, a country bumpkin. And there was a whole campaign by the auto industry to talk about Jays that came in from the country and didn't know how to walk correctly across the street.
0: (laughs) Well, you've done a great column on this sort of looking at sort of the history of it as well. And, you know, right now. In Vancouver, there's a patchwork of laws in Metro Vancouver. It depends where the, the municipality, where you live. Like the Provincial Motor Vehicle Act does not mention jaywalking, but lots of local municipal bylaws do. So it depends It depends where you would do this, where you are in Metro Vancouver or elsewhere in BC, whether you're breaking, breaking the law. I'm not sure but there's I, a lot of enforcement on it, though, by police.
6: But let's talk about <laughs> jaywalking and what happened with jaywalking. Uh, sure. You know, originally, in the 1920s, Cars had no brakes, and cars couldn't corner correctly. And that was actually the time that people were forced to start going on intersections to cross. And when you think of it, if you're a pedestrian, it's much easier to walk mid-block across the street because you've got two ways of traffic. But somehow, the whole idea of motordom in the 20th century made pedestrians behave like vehicles and start crossing at intersections, where there were actually four four different a ways of traffic going now what's curious with jaywalking is jaywalking sadly was used as a way to um, stop people on the street for no reason other than trying to cross the street. And what's curious um, in California and again in Seattle, even though um, even though these tickets you would think would apply equitably, it turns out that African Americans who are fifteen percent of the population were being ticketed 70% of the time.
0: Oh, right.
6: So so there's a whole thing about equity. It also provided a way for people to be stopped. Um, I've actually been in, in Australia trying to cross the street with a fellow whose name was John Walker. He desperately wanted a ticket because for, for, he was Jay Walker, Jaywalking. A Jaywalk. <laughs> right, but this is actually a 20th century vestige. And when they have done studies of mid-block crossings versus crossing an intersection, You are just as safe. In fact, you're a couple of percentage safer crossing on a mid-block crossing versus the four-way.
0: Wow, that's very interesting. Well, we'll see how this works out in California. And by the way, the way this law is going to work in California doesn't mean that you can just walk out dangerously in heavy traffic. It says you still must cross the street safely and you could still be ticketed for not crossing the street safely as a pedestrian. But it it means that you would be allowed to legally cross the street even if you are not at a designated crossing or or a corner or an intersection. Okay, right. Sandy, and,
6: and, and, go ahead. Yes, and you also have to look at what's happening in our population. By 2030, 2035, a quarter of the population is going to be seniors. Um right. They're they're uh, and uh, you know people are slower. They may not have the same visual acuity. Part of it is is accepting that as our cities densify, that we may have to make some changes in how we all behave on the road. And there are three things that cause um, driver deaths, or excuse me, pedestrian deaths. And the first is driver inattention. The -hmm. second is intoxication, and the third is speed. And that directly uh, reflects to what we were also going to talk about, which is um, the municipalities of British Columbia asking the province for the right to do 30-kilometer area zones in residential areas.
0: Right. Okay. So let's talk about that now. And this has been a hot topic recently. What should be the speed limit on neighborhood roads, like residential side streets? And the default speed limit? You correct me if I'm wrong, Sandy. But is it is it fifty? Is,
6: right the now, the default is fifty kilometers an hour. Right.
0: Right. right. So the the default right now is fifty kilometers an hour on a residential side street. That's pretty. You know, that's a pretty good clip when you're talking about a. A side street, there may be kids, you know, wandering around. So a lot of residents, some cities have looked at, okay, let's lower this to 30, right? Let's. Lo- which cities have done that? I know Victoria done that, right?
6: Victoria has done it um, in certain areas. In Vancouver, the city of Vancouver has done it. The problem in certain streets. The problem with that is that because the province has not given the right to the city, they have to do uh, expensive signage, which, of course, you and I as taxpayer pay for and you normally will be about two thousand dollars a block and you have to do the sides as well to indicate a 30 kilometer zone if the province would give the cities the right uh, the the municipalities they could then sign an entire area on the exterior that saves money and allows them to do things that they need to do which is doing road design for 30 kilometers an hour
0: Do you think that would save lives if more cities went to a 30-kilometer-an-hour speed limit on residential streets?
6: Well, you know, I want to look at the city of Edinburgh. And over three years ago, they decided to do just that, that any street that was not an arterial um, moved down to 30 kilometers an hour. And what they found is in those three years, their death rate and serious injury rate went down by 30%. They found that more people were walking and biking and the streets were more sociable. But they also found that they saved the equivalent of $60 million in terms of serious injury and death because of that. And and so, you know, in, we live in a country that also provides great socialized medicine. So it, it, would, it would make sense to try to save lives. What we also know is that a car at 50 kilometers an hour, a car driver, uh, if you were hit, you have a 10 percent chance of staying alive if you're hit at 30 kilometers an hour you have a 90 percent chance of being alive as a pedestrian and slower speeds also allow more um more driver acuity they can see longer they have more re- reaction time so you know one of our problems here mike and you and i've talked about this is that november december and january are are the dead the deadly months in metro vancouver mm. and in any municipality in British Columbia that doesn't have snow, because you it's it's rainy, it's wet, and you just don't see people on the road. And this is the number one way um, to to make more people survive.
0: Yeah, especially when people are wearing black, which seems to be the most popular color choice.
6: Well, you know it's also hard to find anything different than black. Yeah, and, you know <laughs> you, you can take a look at um, the country of Finland that has a had a tremendous alcoholism problem and a very very high rate. Of um, pedestrian deaths, and about 30 years ago, they mandated that children and up to the age of 18 had to wear two flashers or have some kind of uh, reflective material on their clothes at, at in winter time, and that's now become more or less the standard in Finland. And they've also found that that they, they they've really lowered their death and serious injury rate. But we okay. just don't have a culture that allows for bright clothes in winter.
0: Sandy, it's always great to have you on. Always food for thought. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it a lot.
6: Thank you so much, Mike. Have the very best day.